Good morning again. Thanks for joining us here at Prairie View Christian Church. We appreciate you being here. As mentioned earlier, Palm Sunday marks Jesus' arrival into Jerusalem, beginning the final week leading up to his death and resurrection. The Gospel of John includes an account of Jesus' triumphal entry. It's in chapter 12, starting in verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, we'll talk about that in a moment. Then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. What would you do if you knew that you had less than one week to live and that a gruesome and unjust execution lay just a few days away? Would you spend time with your family and friends? Would you write out a will that you've been meaning to get to? Would you eat whatever you wanted? Would you reach out to the one who got away? Well, in John 17, Jesus spends a significant amount of his time in prayer. This chapter has often been called Jesus's high priestly prayer. It comes at the end of an extended conversation with his disciples. Sometime between Thursday evening, when Jesus washes his disciples' feet, and his nighttime arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's a long prayer. By far, Jesus' longest prayer recorded anywhere in the Gospels. And that alone makes it worthy of our attention. But who exactly does Jesus pray for? What does Jesus pray for? And are his prayer requests answered? Open up to John chapter 17, verse 1. Feel free to use our Bibles if you need it. Take it home if you don't have one. But before we read, let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this opportunity that we have to... Read your word and worship you. And as we enter into your word, I pray that you would prepare our hearts, prepare our minds, prepare our ears to hear what it is that you have to say at this time and in this place. Your word doesn't change, but we do. And so I pray that you would speak to us in a new and fresh way to convict us and challenge us and encourage us, but also speak to us in the way that You've always spoken to remind us of these truths that we hear time and time again, Palm Sunday after Palm Sunday, Easter Sunday after Easter Sunday, these truths that do not change, but we still so desperately need. 
I pray that you'd speak to us this morning through your word. Thank you for the privilege and the opportunity to be here with fellow believers, those we know and those we don't, brothers and sisters in Christ. And Lord, if there are unbelievers in the room, I pray that you would give them ears to hear your word as well. And Lord, again, I pray that we would be welcoming, hospitable, kind, generous as a church today, that we would be your people in this place the way you call us to be. I pray that not just for this morning, but throughout the week, that we would be the church you call us to be. And a huge part of that is by simply reading and hearing and listening to and submitting to your word. So help us do that this morning. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for your life, your death, your body, your blood, your resurrection, and your ascension. Thank you that you went into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, knowing what lay ahead of you, and yet you set your face toward Jerusalem. You went on your way of suffering that ultimately ended in glory, so that our ways of suffering can end in glory as well. And Lord, help us look forward to when you come again and make another triumphal entry as King and Lord and Judge, when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you are Lord. Prepare us for that day. We love you. We worship you. We ask this all in Christ's name. We thank you for your spirit. Amen. Well, starting in John 17, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you. Before the world existed. So in these opening verses, Jesus prays for himself. Throughout the Gospel of John, we've read that Jesus' time had not yet come. Had not yet come. Had not yet come. But here, his hour finally has come. It's time for the Father to glorify the Son, and the Son to glorify the Father. But how will all this glory be accomplished? One word. Death. We see it back in chapter 12, starting in verse 27. Jesus says to his disciples there, Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has not come for your sake. Has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. 
And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Of course, death doesn't sound all that glorious at first glance, especially not the horrifying brutality of death on a cross. But Jesus knows that the cross isn't the end of the story. Jesus knows that his death leads to glory. He knows that he will rise from the dead, ascend to the Father's presence, and return to the position of eternal glory in heaven that is and always has been rightfully his. His hour has come. In just a few short days, his work will be totally and perfectly complete. It's time for glory. So Jesus prays for himself. He prays that in the coming days, the father would glorify him so that he might glorify the father. So Jesus is not embarrassed to pray for himself. But at the same time, the primary concern of these opening words is God's glory. And perhaps that's a lesson for our own prayer lives. We shouldn't hesitate to ask God to help us, to pray for ourselves. But we also make sure that we're praying for ourselves in a way that's concerned with God's glory above all else. But Jesus doesn't just pray for himself in John 17. He prays for his disciples. And in a roundabout way, he even prays for us. So what are Jesus' prayer requests for his disciples, both then and now? For that, we turn to verses 6 through 23. We read there. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. That's a reference to Judas, if you're curious. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world.
So Jesus prays for his disciples' protection. He prays for their protection. Now, we should not downplay the amazing gift of the Holy Spirit that Jesus just promised in chapters 14 through 16. However, we also have to acknowledge that after his death, after his resurrection, after his ascension, Jesus will no longer be with his disciples in the same way he was before. For some three years, Jesus has always been there to guard them. But now, in a sense, the disciples must continue the mission without him. So Jesus prays for their protection. On top of that, Jesus knows that he is sending his disciples into hostile territory. This fallen world is full of people like Judas. This world may very well hate them for their faith in him. Jesus is sending his disciples into a world where the evil one, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Now, on the one hand, Jesus has been honest with his disciples about the danger of following him. Persecution is a real threat that the disciples have to be prepared for. But on the other hand, that doesn't stop Jesus from praying for their protection, especially that the Father would keep them in his name. To this very day, disciples of Jesus, like us, still need God's protection. There are still people like Judas out there, those who would not hesitate to betray believers in order to make a buck. This fallen world may still hate us at times. Many might consider Christians an annoyance at best or an existential threat to progress, flourishing, and even survival at worst. And yes, we really do live in a world where the devil still lurks. But take heart. Take comfort in knowing that Jesus has prayed for his disciples' protection. Again, we still must be prepared for the prospect of suffering for Jesus' name. But we prepare with the knowledge that the eternal Son of God has prayed for his Father to protect us. But what else does Jesus pray for with his disciples? Look to verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. So Jesus prays for his disciples protection and he prays for his disciples sanctification. That word sanctification can have two main meanings. First, it can mean that something is set apart for holiness. Or it can mean that something is in the process of actually becoming holy. For example, I can set apart a few pieces of wood to build a fire, or I can actually light a match and turn the wood into fire. 
Now, it's not a stretch to think that Jesus could have both ideas in view. Jesus may be praying that as his disciples are sent out into the world, they would remain set apart, sanctified from the world. But he's also praying that they would actively grow in holiness, not just be earmarked for it. This is the very reason Jesus was set apart for the cross, that his disciples might be set apart for and grow in holiness. Now, how will the disciples be sanctified? There's probably lots of good biblical answers for that. But here, Jesus stresses the truth. Sanctify them in the truth. They can be sanctified by his words, by his teaching, by his example. And like the disciples then, we too need to be sanctified. I think we all know how easy it is to simply blend into the world around us. We are consistently tempted to just go with the flow. But disciples of Jesus have been set apart for holiness. That's why the Bible refers to us as saints. We're called to be salt and light in a world that is decaying and darkened by sin. We too are called to grow in holiness by the Spirit's power and with the word of truth as our guide. The moment when we first believe in Jesus, repent of our sins and are forgiven, we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, God looks at us as his children, looks at us as righteous, that's often referred to as justification. And justification is just the beginning. Jesus prays for our sanctification. The long road of actually living out our new status before God. The process of becoming holy, just as he is holy. So Jesus prays for protection, sanctification. And in verse 20, we see that Jesus prays for his disciples' unity. We read there. I do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, And loved them even as you loved me. Jesus prays that his disciples would be unified. One with him. One with each other. One with the believers who would come after them. That's people like you and me. People who would believe through the apostles' words. That's basically every Christian that has followed them. And this unity is not just for the sake of our own peace and harmony and productivity, as valuable as those things are. Our unity is for the sake of our mission. 
It's for the sake of our public witness to a watching world. After all, who wants to follow a Lord whose disciples can't get along? Who wants to be part of a church where none of the people like each other? Our unity is for the sake of our mission. Jesus got at the same idea back in chapter 13 when he washes his disciples' feet. We read at the end of Jesus washing their feet, verse 34, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Needless to say, Jesus' disciples today still need to strive for unity. Amidst all our differences, may we not forget that we are all united to the same Lord by faith. May we not forget that we are all united to each other as brothers and sisters in the same household of God. May we also not forget that we are united to believers who have gone before us. Believers who will come after us. Believers on this planet who we will likely never meet this side of Christ's return. In a world that is plagued by polarization, suspicion, and alienation, our unity, our love for each other, through thick and thin, no matter how different we may be, that can be a powerful tool for public witness. People can see our unity, see our love, and maybe, just maybe, be open to the concept that these Christians just might be on to something. Our unity can be a form of public witness. So Jesus prays that his disciples, then and now, would be unified. Again, in some of his final moments leading up to the cross... When Jesus could have been doing all kinds of things, he prays for our protection, our sanctification, and our unity. But there's one more way that Jesus prays for us that we haven't covered yet. And it ties back to how he prayed for himself in those opening verses. In verses 1 through 5, he prayed that the Father would glorify him and that he would glorify the Father in his presence. And in verses 24 through 26, Jesus prays a similar prayer for us. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. So Jesus prays for his disciples' future glory. Jesus is looking forward to returning to the Father's glorious presence when his work is complete. And his disciples can look forward to being in his glorious presence. Be with Jesus again. 
And that day they will have no need for protection. They will be fully sanctified. And they will be perfectly united to him, to each other, and to all the other saints once and for all. They will experience God's love in all its beauty, fullness, and glory. And Jesus' disciples today, unremarkable people like you and me, can look forward to that same glory. In some ways, we've already experienced that glory. Even now, we've had a taste of the glory that is to come. Eternal life isn't something far off in the future. It's something we've already been given. But in other ways, we're still waiting. We're still longing for Jesus' return. Longing for his kingdom. Longing for his glory. But we can be confident of what awaits us in the future. Even if we have to take up crosses between now and then, we know that one day Jesus' prayer that we see his glory will be answered. This week I found myself reading some of the final words of a few famous figures. The Roman statesman Cicero, as he was being attacked by an enemy, said this. There is nothing proper about what you are doing, soldier, but do try to kill me properly. Revolutionary war spy Nathan Hale said, as he was being executed by the British, I only regret that I have but one life to lose for my country. Marie Antoinette, as she was walking to the guillotine and accidentally stepped on her executioner's foot, said this. Pardon me, sir. I did not do it on purpose. British Prime Minister Winston Churchill, on his deathbed, simply said, I'm so bored with it all. And U.S. General George Patton, in Europe, did not die on the battlefield of World War II, but rather died in a jeep accident. And he said, this is a hell of a way to die. Some of those words are inspiring, some are amusing, and some are downright depressing. But they're all important, because someone's final words may tell us an awful lot about them. And the same may be true about Jesus' words in John 17. He rarely speaks again in the Gospel of John until after he rises from the dead. And it's noteworthy that Jesus uses some of his final words to pray. He prays for himself. He prays for his disciples. He prays for us. It might even be said that Jesus continues to pray for us. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 8.34 that Jesus intercedes for us. And the author of Hebrews says that Jesus always lives to make intercession for us. May Jesus' prayer be answered. Some of them already have been answered. He's been glorified by the Father. The Father's been glorified by him. Jesus' eleven disciples were protected, sanctified, and unified in astounding ways. 
If they hadn't been, the church wouldn't exist. But some of these prayers are still in progress. God is still at work protecting, sanctifying, and unifying people like us. And the last request, that all of God's people would see God's glory in all its fullness in his presence, that one hasn't happened yet. But one day it will, thanks to Jesus' death and resurrection. The book of James tells us that the prayers of a righteous man are powerful and effective. We can be sure that the prayers of Jesus Christ, the righteous man, are powerful and effective as well. And that's good to know. Because in some of Jesus' final moments, he prays for people like us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Again, thank you for your word. Thank you that even now we can come to your presence with confidence. Because you love us, you've forgiven us, you've adopted us as your children. Thanks to Christ's broken body and shed blood. And thank you that even now, Lord, you are interceding for us. You prayed for us in the past before we were even a twinkle in our mother's eyes. And in a way, you still pray for us. You still help us. Lord, I pray that would be a source of comfort and a source of encouragement and a source of assurance for us in a world that often lacks those things. And Lord, I pray that all these prayers would be fulfilled. We pray with you that you would protect us, keep us in your name, that you would sanctify us, grow us in holiness, and that you would unify us as brothers and sisters in Christ. And we pray, Lord, that you would sustain us until we see your glory, until we see you face to face, until we understand in a deeper, more beautiful way just how good you are and just how poor us, Lord. I pray that you'd continue interceding for us, preserve us and help us persevere by the power of your spirit until we see your glory. We love you. We honor you. We worship you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.